This podcast is made possible by our sponsor, Vital Smarts. From over 30 years of research, Vital Smarts has found two behaviours that arise when we're faced with a tough conversation. What you might find yourself doing is holding back, not knowing what to say until one day you explode. Vital Smarts will teach you the speak up skills to be able to talk to almost anyone about almost anything. So visit vitalsmarts.com.au forward slash DSTM for a special listener offer. These are four women who may now be vulnerable. Does he hate them because they're women? Does he hate them because they are a different colour? Does he hate them because of their various religious backgrounds? It's bad enough when it's Alan Jones or Sam Newman or Andrew Bolt or Miranda Devine. But when it's a club president, or in this case, the American president, when your leaders are doing it, it's actually so terrifying and so damaging. Looking back over this bumper month of international sport, which victory captivated you the most? Richmond over the Greater Western Sydney. On oh. <laughs> Just kidding. The World Cup. Take the, that English cricket the, the, team. The Men's Cricket World Cup. Which is an ongoing saga. I have not seen an end to a tournament like that ever. But would you lobby that hard just for a chicken breast on a Saturday afternoon? Corrie, it's more than a chicken breast. It's a beautiful way to watch the football. It is a very, very influential institution in Melbourne. That's it. I declare IKEA the tenth circle of hell. Oh, Casey, how can you say that? I love nothing more than wandering around IKEA, pretending I'm Swedish. Don't shoot the messenger podcast with Caroline Wilson and Corrie Perkin. Welcome, everybody, to episode 92 of Don't Shoot the Messenger. It's a cold, wintry, rainy day in Melbourne, and I am Caroline Wilson. I'm here with my friend, the beautiful bookseller, and my fellow traveller, not communist, actual traveller, Corrie Perkin. Hey, Corrie. Hey, Caro. Thanks for the beautiful comment. I don't feel it today. We are full. a big night in the bookshop last night, so I'm feeling a little weary. We are full of news. I have seen, finally seen... A very poignant and moving film. You were going to talk about the book you were just absolutely loving when we travelled together. You've got a recipe that you actually made for me on Saturday night. Mine will come in the coming weeks that I made for you. We're checking in on all of our goals. I've got some good news and I've got some bad news on the goals. And we're chock full of news about royals, about Trump, about football. It's all happening about politics. But I want to... We're so busy. We are. I want to mention a few people. Our friend Bridget Nile. Now, Bridget, Corrie, you should have met, but you pulled out on a date we had last year to go to a footy final involving Hawthorne. So Anna from the op shop came and we sat with Bridget Nile, who was the cousin of the aged chief football writer, Jake. Anna from the op shop has just become basically good friends with her. And she told her about the podcast. She wants to talk to us about your comments about Andrew and Fergie getting back together. Her theory is that it could be something to do about a story that when she wrote this email was about to hit the headlines, but is now massive news. That sleazebag, that international sleazebag and all round bad egg, Jeffrey Epstein. Um, With another sleazebag, man about town, Prince Andrew. Well, Jeffrey Epstein had a plane and there was lots of young, very, very young women on the plane and a lot of big names from Bill Clinton, all sorts of people have been on this plane, but we think Prince Andrew might have been on it. And um, according to Bridget, maybe they're trying to put some space between Andrew well, and Epstein. Bridget, well spotted. You should be an investigative journalist because you've predicted the news as it was coming out. So, uh, one massive of, on the news last night. One of the, one of the girls... Uh, who at the time was 17, was uh, a friend of Jeffrey Epstein's and was brought into the fold when Prince Andrew was visiting the US. And she alleges that she had sex against her will 
with Prince Andrew. I'm not sure what against her will actually means. We'll give him the benefit of the doubt. He has completely denied all charges and claims, but she is really determined to take this all the way for compensation and some sort of acknowledgement that she was uh, brought into Jeffrey Epstein's weird fold. It's going to get very nasty, but talk of Fergie. I'm sorry to really bring it down to the lowest common denominator. but Which is rem- not Fergie, we it, might add. We love Fergie. It rem- remember when I interviewed Fergie on 3AW? Mm. It was, I mean, it, it wasn't the world's greatest interview, but it was you, very... You, you mentioned this almost as frequently as I mentioned the well, fact that I interviewed Hugh Grant. Well, it was so nerve-wracking. <laughs> it was so nerve-wracking. But the point about Fergie is, remember when she had her hen's night when she was marrying Prince Andrew? And remember she and Diana were sort of a bit of partners in crime? And there was some bad behaviour and hijinks, and I think the police got involved, and I don't think the royals ever really forgave her, but apparently they have now. Your love of cheesy feet biscuits from the Foy Bakery that, in fact, I discovered. I know you. I got credit for your crush on Ash Barty, but I'm sorry. I discovered oh, no, the cheesy no. feet. I think, I think Kylie Narrick, who's contacted us via Instagram, she's sharing the love between us about the cheesy feet. Thank you, Kylie. You've actually got the recipe, and she's got the biscuit cutters. Apparently, they're the go-to recipe in Nigella's Feast. So she's offering to bring them bring them to our hundredth party, which is really it's going <laughs> so, to Can I just say, Kylie, you've got a ticket, doll. And <laughs> you're in. <laughs> and Fee J Bree wishes that I hadn't referred to drug users as junkies. Um that's probably fair enough. It's something that drug users and drug addicts themselves refer to them as occasionally, but they are people first and foremost. You are right, the term's derogatory. Otherwise she agrees with me. And Nat on Instagram, applauds Dane Beams for talking about mental health. She's sick of hearing about how Magic Door fell from the bridge. Look, and we, we had this um, similar comment from um, Rach Riddell on Facebook. No one really knows exactly what happened with Magic Door over the summer. There are several versions of this story. What we do know is that he did fall from the bridge. He sustained terrible injuries, miraculously, and it is miraculously, he's playing... Um, He's playing second-tier football again. So he's almost back in the elite level of AFL football, and he seems to be doing okay. So, And I think it's up to him to, to explain, you know, fall or jump, and that if he wants to talk about it that way, then that, we should all respect that. Caro, we did have a lovely uh, Instagram, lots of feedback actually about our Cornwall trip and lots of interest in our uh, our agenda, what we did. But SCW101 on Instagram said... Great show. I've been doing cycling holidays in Europe for years. For me, it's the only way to be a tourist. Cornwall walking sounds perfect, and I'm here to tell you it is. Yes, I wouldn't. Uh, uh, cycling trips sound great. I'm not so good on a bike, but I have done it. I wouldn't recommend Cornwall on a bike, certainly not the coast. <laughs> it would be nigh impossible. Bill no Ho- fences. <laughs> Bill Hodges wrote us a great email about the board election at the Melbourne Cricket Club, which I'm actually a member of, Corrie, and they did issue a stern warning to members, and there was an article in The Age about this. There was an electioneering. There was some bad behaviour. Um, there was, there is a, has been a hotly contested ballot for the three vacant committee positions, and Bill's background was fascinating. It's an issue to watch. My The most interesting thing that happened in my memory on the MCC board was when, remember when Steve Vizard was forced to resign after he got into trouble for insider trading and sort of resigned in disgrace, really. And 
what happened was nobody was really ready for it except a young man by the name of Will Fowles, who's become a politician now. And Will Fowles, who is a relative, I think a son or nephew of the Fowles Auction Group, and a very funny man, and still you still see him at the football all the time, just nipped in there. Just He was just the candidate ready to pounce. No one was ready for it. And because he knew of a loophole in the rules that could get him straight in, it wasn't really a loophole, he, he just got in. It is a, it's an interesting thing, the MCC. Thanks to you having a crack at me last year for not paying my membership. And I said, that's it. I've seen two games in a year. Each game's costing me about $300. I'm not this wealthy. You said, no, no, don't give it up. So I paid again. So I also received the emails. I wondered the other day, why is this one of the hottest tickets in town? Well, it, do they get nice seats on oh, well, of course grand they final get, day? Yes, they get nice seats every week, and the food is unbelievable in the committee room, I tell you. There's it is so just, much lobbying. I'm, you, I'm not sure I'll be invited for a while after would the you lobby that hard for the MCC. But, but would you lobby that hard just for a chicken breast on a Saturday afternoon? Corrie, it's more than a chicken breast. It's a, it's a beautiful way to watch the football. It is a very, very influential institution in Melbourne. It's, um, I mean, there are, there are, it now, it, it's one of the first boards really to bring in women on a big scale. And you know, they could well now have a woman president, except, um, the most impressive woman on the board didn't, didn't have the time to do it. Look, it's, um. And who would that be? I'll come back to you. Um, it is just, it's just a, well, it's hard to explain, but, it is so – its relationship with the AFL, with government, with cricket, I mean, it, it shapes our town. And, and the, M, the MCG is one of the biggest financial entities and the biggest economic entities in Australia. And it is the greatest football – it is the greatest sporting stadium in the world. Uh, trust me, it is. It's better than Wembley, and Wembley's pretty impressive. Oh, so. well, it looks like I'll have to go around again for another year's membership. Now, Corrie, the challenges, how are you going – well, Caro, my goal to not do any social media between the hours of 7.30 at night and the next morning haven't been going so well, but I am happy to say that my time on Instagram has been, it's dramatically been reduced, which people can actually see if they go into their settings on Instagram. You can see how frequently you're using it, which sometimes can give you a bit of a shock, actually. But, and it's yes, interesting. I, I think it was a good decision by you after travelling with in, you. Oh, Caro, now come I know on. I had for business work. to I run. Know, you I know. were getting very antsy with me. I didn't complain about your coughing, so I don't know why you had to keep complaining about my Instagram. No, I just wanted you... I had you... a business to run. I have fans <laughs> who need my book tips. Anyway, oh anyway, Lord. so I'm not being overly successful, but I think also the point of a challenge as well should be to... We, what we're trying to do with these challenges is also to change our, our bad life patterns and bad habits. And I'm certainly doing that because it is making me aware of how much stupid time at 11 o'clock at night when I can't get to sleep I'm spending on that silly phone. So the silly phone is now on the other side of the bedroom, which is a really good outcome. Can I just issue in a good? I'm issuing an early apology to Karen Wood, who I was referring to. She's the vice president of the MCC. And um, until her retirement in 2015, she was a member of the senior executive at BHP. I've got good and bad news about my challenge. Well, well you, you were there. I, can't I had imagine a, what the good news is. I had a glass of champagne on I Saturday saw that. Night. I didn't want to make a deal of it, but I, I did see it. I said see, to Brendan, I mean, see look. that foul drink. Pass your lips. I was, look, as you know, I was. I you was, were overexcited. I was catering for the Cornish reunion, 
with our four walkers and husbands, and it was a busy day. I had had to drive back to Melbourne to do radio. I'm not complaining, and I did slave over a hot stove from 3 o'clock onwards, 3.30, with the fish pie, etc. and there was that lovely champagne in the fridge, and I said to Brendan, you know what, I'm having a glass. So I probably had a glass and a half of champagne, hands up. However... In happier news... I'm not sure how this can be good news. You've just broken your July challenge. I know, but I didn't have a drink on June 30, so let's just call it quits, all right? <laughs> um, you, know, you could justify yourself getting out of a paper in bag. Happy, really? I hope you are unbelievable. Corrie, it's still good that I've had one one and a half drinks in over two weeks. Come on, you must admit. Um, olives, the olives. I tasted one the other day because since I've got back, I haven't done the brining with the with the um, dark vinegar or brown vinegar. I've just been literally replacing the water with some rock salt every three days. And Clementine did look after them while I was away. They are now tasting like olives. They taste like takeaway <laughs> olives. They, I had one the other day. I'm Clem and so I went. Pleased. We went, oh, they're beautiful, but they're a little bit tasteless, but they're soft and they taste like, you know, deli olives. And um, so now I've been adding a bit more salt because my friend Deb said, don't add too much salt because you can add salt later. Well, I'm here to tell you, you girls, in a few weeks, I'll be bringing in olives. Great. They are really, I have a really... feeling, though, that your daughter, Clem, might be taking a little bit of credit for the olives. Oh, she, she was great. She obviously helped me. She um, babysat them. She babysat away. them. But I was the one who picked them and cut the incisions. Now, Corrie, you had a wonderful event at your bookshop this week. We did. And it um, related around one of my heroes, Nikki Sava, who's written another book, and I hear it's fantastic. It is, Cara. So I can remember when you and I were young cadets, and when I worked for The Age, there was a thing of going up to Canberra for a few days, or I can't remember what it was in relation to, but anyway, I was there in the midst of the two scariest female journalists ever in the history of the world, which is Nikki Sava and Michelle Grattan. And I'm pleased to say last night Nikki Sava was at the bookshop, and I confessed that I... I was terrified of her when I was 17, 18. And um, anyway, that led to a lovely discussion about great female role models. But her book, Plots and Prayers, Malcolm Turnbull's Demise and Scott Morrison's Ascension, has just hit the number six best-selling list after only two weeks in Australia, and they have pressed the button on the second print run. I imagine there'll be a third. This book is hot. It is a tell-all. Nikki hit the phones the day after Malcolm Turnbull was rolled. She had no book commission. She had no project. She, no one had said, we want you to write a 3,000-word article for The Australian. She just started doing it because that's what a, well, that's what a natural journalist does. And she started collecting everybody, everybody's recollections while they were still fresh in their mind. Your husband, Brendan Donahue, did a most exceptional job last night in interviewing. They were a really great team, Nikki and Brendan, and I'm hugely grateful to him. And, of course, to all our potties and our bookshop gang who came along. Thanks for supporting the event. Nikki touched on a lot of issues, Caro, that really – stuff that you and I have talked about in this podcast over the years, uh, bullying – um, the machinations of the Liberal Party, uh, how people can get leadership spills and crises like this so incredibly wrong uh, and the fallout. Why can't they manage themselves better? But one of the things in particular that was talked about last night was the blatant bullying and sexism that became apparent in that week leading up to Malcolm Turnbull's demise. And in fact, we recorded last night's discussion uh well, Miss Jane did, actually. Our producer came along and she recorded it for an episode of The Book Pod, which we'll be dropping later this week. And, Janie, I think you've got a little grab there on the sexism matter. 
So there's a lot of ringing around and texting that a lot of MPs, ministers, etc. Were, were hearing from people who normally wouldn't say boo to them, <laughs> including um, didn't Julie Bishop talk to Tony Abbott she about did. the potential for him voting for her? And what, and what did he say to her? She did. Well, well, she won't go into details. Uh, when I interviewed her, I said, how did that go? And she held her mobile phone out here. And, <laughs> and subsequently she told people that uh, he'd said something to her like, why would I vote for Malcolm in a skirt? Oh. <laughs> So she was um, from, you know, what I've heard from others, because surprisingly enough, Tony Abbott doesn't speak to me. Uh, <laughs> can't understand that, but anyway. You've got to buy a bike. Uh, <laughs> he, um, she is number one on his enemies list, and I think I'm number two. Nikki was great. She spoke candidly. We said to her, look, we're recording this for the book pod. If there's anything that you want to go off the record about or we can cut it out later. She said, no, I'm standing by everything that we'll talk about. It's open slather. And she was really forthright. This is a great book, Caro. It's $35. And there are a couple of uh, observations about this book if people are wondering why they should buy it. I mentioned Nikki Savas' journalistic instincts are incredible. The other thing that leaves you with a terrible distaste in your mouth is although Tony Abbott is gone, there are these malcontents and destabilizers like Peter Dutton, uh, you know, they are still around. And and Matthias Cormann, as I said last week, is the real bad guy in this whole story. Yeah, Brendan said, I said, what's the question that comes to you out of reading the book? He said, is there any loyalty at all in politics? It's just horrifying. And you remember, well... Di- didn't Tony Abbott and Peter Credlin almost try and get Nikki Savas sacked from The Australian? Yes. When she wrote the first book about, well, about Tony Abbott, but also about their very strange well, relationship. Well, they'd always had a few, because she worked in Peter Costello's office when Tony Abbott was health minister, and Peter Credlin was then a young staffer on Tony Abbott's office. So the two women and the two men always had this kind of other side of the trenches view anyway. So I don't think there's a lot of love between them. Um, but looks like a great, looks like a great book. It, it is a really good book, and I think thoroughly recommend it, but it just also brings to mind uh, issues that are happening, bubbling away in the US at the moment, racism and sexism alive and well in Washington. And I'm absolutely appalled by President Trump's inappropriate tweeting over the weekend regarding these four, we'll call them freshmen because everybody's calling them that, four freshmen congressmen who have just joined uh, the US Congress. And they have been attacked absolutely attacked by President Trump unnecessarily. One is Hispanic, two are Muslim, and one African-American. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ilana Omar, Rashida Tlaib, and Ayana, sorry, Ayana Presley. And over the weekend, they were attacked by President Trump for being anti-American, and basically he was saying that they should go home to the countries from which they came, which is interesting because three of them were actually born in the US. Let's have a listen to what he actually said. If you hate our country... If you're not happy here, you can leave. And that's what I say all the time. That's what I said in a tweet, which I guess some people think is controversial. A lot of people love it, by the way. A lot of people love it. But if you're not happy in the U.S., if you're complaining all the time, very simply, you can leave. You can leave right now. 
Oh, you leave, Donald Trump. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has said the House will vote this week on a resolution to condemn Trump's tweets, which will be interesting because they have a Democrat majority in the House. And the Speaker, the top Democrat in the Senate, Chuck Schumer, has also said that they're going to try and force, force a vote in the Republican-held Senate, which may or may not work. And, they, and Schumer has asked his Republican colleagues, where are you when something this serious, this bigoted, this un-American happens? And thankfully, the media, which New York Times and the Washington Post in the whole presidency of Trump, Donald Trump, have tried to play it with a straight bat and be very fair because they're terrified of being accused by the president of being biased. But the New York Times has come out thumping this week, absolutely thumping. They are appalled by what this racism can, can, what can happen from this. Caro, these are four women who may now be vulnerable. Does he hate them because they're women? Does he hate them because they are a different colour? Does he hate them? because of their various religious backgrounds. I, I just, it is, it's modern America. They represent modern America. I think what's frightening is when you get it not from um, certain sections of the media who might have biases and might have some sort of racist or other tendencies, homophobic, whatever, but it, it it's not dissimilar in, um, I mean, in, in this country you have some shocking things said by media people and, and in America too. But when it's a leader, I mean, I mean, in my little sphere, the AFL, I think when, when Jeff Kennett made those comments about the new arrivals, the, secu- the people in security at Marvel Stadium, or when, and, and I'm going to talk about um, the Adam Goods film in a minute, but when Eddie Maguire made the, the King Kong comments, it's bad enough when it's Alan Jones or Sam Newman or Andrew Bolt or Miranda Devine. But when it's a club president, or in this case, the American president, when your leaders are doing it, it's it's actually so terrifying and so damaging. So- and what's terrifying is that the, the silence on the other side. There are Republicans, I understand, reading the Washington Post overnight, there are Republicans who on the quiet are, are really condemning of this particular action of Donald Trump's, but they have to be vocal about it. It's so interesting. But it brings me to another question I wanted to ask you about if we were on the racism and sexism alive and well um, theme <laughs> of everywhere. our podcast. What's happening in the AFL? You had a very interesting column on the weekend about Tanya Horsch. Tell me about that. Tanya Horsch. Oh, sorry, she, um, That's all right. Look, Tanya Horsch is a fascinating story and – she is the AFL's first Indigenous executive, and she's a woman, and you don't get many women onto the AFL executive, and a couple of, well, three of them have pretty much failed and retreated quite embarrassingly for the AFL, some high profile, some not. Gillan McLaughlin absolutely trumpeted Tanya Hosh's appointment. She replaced Jason Mifsud. Her um, title involves um, inclusion, diversity, and obviously she's Indigenous, which is her absolute go-to issue. It was long overdue that the AFL put in someone of huge seniority to really look look at the whole Indigenous portfolio. Um, I wrote a column about her because I have come around to some of the achievements that she has made in a really difficult three years in head office. Were you critical of her at the beginning? A couple of times I have been critical of her. I was disappointed a couple of times when I didn't think she took a strong enough stand on gender issues. But I I look back, um, particularly there was one incident on the footy field where Jake Carlisle said a disgusting thing to Mark Murphy, the then Carlton captain, about his wife. 
and it was so disgusting that Mark Murphy went nuts and he was criticised for retaliating against Jake Carlisle, the St Kilda player. And my view was that the, it was on-field sledging of the most disgusting type. If it's racial, the AFL jumps all over it. But because it was gender-based, they didn't, and I was critical. And I thought maybe Tanya could have done more. What she has done in the Indigenous space has been huge. You'll go to AFL House, AFL headquarters in Docklands, Corrie, and she'll be sitting with, um, you know, Layla from the Mangrook Footy Show, or she'll be sitting with um, Shelley Ware or a, a lot of Indigenous broadcasters trying to trying to encourage them to seek a higher profile. It's no coincidence that Gilbert McAdam is now part of Channel 7's footy coverage, the first time an Indigenous man has been a regular commentator on free-to-air TV. He was there for the – and totally orchestrated and dealt with the in, savage internal politics of the Nikki Winmar statue unveiling. Disappointing to hear in recent days that Nikki Winmar is, in fact, chasing facing assault charges. I following, was, yeah. It was, was anyway, that's, that's another story. But I, I just thought to myself – why was I critical of her? And there was a lot of briefing against her. You know, she was a princess. Her expenses were too high. Um, she stayed in different hotels to the men. She turned up late at meetings. She swore a lot. She has a tendency to reach for her mobile phone and start texting during meetings. And people very senior at the AFL who were critical of her too and thinking, oh, my Lord, we've created a monster here, have come around and realised that her style is just completely different. And as she said herself to friends, why, why when they employed me did they expect me to fit the mould when they wanted an Indigenous woman who was an advocate? She was a, the joint campaign director for the Recognise campaign, which was a brutally political experience for her in Canberra. Um, and, and I realised that yeah, this is terrible. I've actually fallen for the boys' club crap myself. So I made a lot of calls to a lot of people, black and white, over last week. And it just painted a completely different picture to some of her achievements. She's helped create a separate players' association, Indigenous players. Now, Sam Newman was very critical of this, for example. Well, this is just, you know, creating more um, disunity. Well, no, Indigenous players don't feel the AFLPA did enough for them during the 90s. Or... Yes, Sam, and look back in the early 70s, that's why the women's electoral lobby was formed, so women could actually have a place where they could meet and feel safe and talk about national politics. Sometimes we just actually have to have our own separate spaces to make our achievements. And and the, the, the text messaging in meetings, I think, you know, is maybe a defence mechanism, a bit of insecurity. Her work in uniting the entire competition around the Adam Goods issue I just wish she'd been there when when the booing actually began and when that whole Australian of the Year debate began. But anyway, I, I just find it so interesting that this outsider was treated so badly and almost resigned two or three times, just really felt that she was on the outer. And thank heavens, she's survived and thrived. Anyway, that's um, Tanya Hosh. Um I'm really looking forward to hearing what you say in BSF about the Adam Goods documentary too, which goes to air this week on television. Uh, now, I have a crush, Caro. I want to hear about it, Corrie. <laughs> it's probably a bit of an obvious one. I would imagine you'll guess this. My crush is Megan Rapino, the co-captain of the American Women's Professional Soccer cl- Club or um, team that last week won the World Cup. They Very defeated. sporty in our crushes lately, aren't we? We are a bit. I tried to – I was going to perhaps go for the four – the four Democrats uh, who were being targeted by 
Trump because some of their responses have been really outstanding, but we decided to make that a particular issue. So, yes, I am in the sporting field again, and I was really blown away in particular by she's – she's done a number of uh, speeches. She's been become the public advocate for her gang, and they the whole team are right behind her. So they've allowed her to speak at the crowd, for example, to the crowd when they did the New York – they did a big, you know, kind of – cavalcade, if you like, down the streets of New York and Megan gave a fantastic speech afterwards and she's been the spokesperson for the group. And she's done a number of media interviews, but one in particular, she was with Meet the Press on the weekend, which is that esteemed American television show. And she just made a whole sort of series of observations about the state of America at the moment. And she spoke in such an inclusive way, but also quite politically motivated as well. She talked about this is an opportunity in everyone's exhaustion of the fighting and the negative and the opportunity, of course, being the, the, the joy and the euphoria that surrounded the team's win. And she was asked whether she had any political aspirations. And she said, look, she sees herself as an activist, but her big thing at the moment is equal pay. Equal pay is her mission. And as we know, the women's soccer team has been fighting for equal pay oh, with she's the had men a for a major long time. Cra- a major crack at FIFA. She's been fantastic, she even, been. even before they won the World Cup. But I love, I love someone who actually calls it like it is when they said, oh, do you have any political aspirations? You know how sometimes people pretend to be coy and say, oh, no. She said, absolutely, I do. But at the moment, my total focus is equal pay. And she's just, I think she's a beacon for hope and light in what is a pretty dark space in America and also for women in sport and women generally, that you can just get up and, and, and argue your case success, succinctly and hopefully successfully. So Megan is my crush, Caro. And still play well and still win. And still win. That was Crush of the Week. It's now time for BSF. That stands for Books, Screen and Food. And it's thanks to our show sponsor, Vital Smarts. Vital Smarts, if your organisation is suffering from unsupportive, lazy or poor performers gives you the training and your staff the skills to speak up and hold each other accountable. It's used by more than 300 of the top Fortune 500 companies. It's globally proven to solve communication and behaviour problems in any culture or industry. Crucial conversations and crucial accountability training something, Corrie, you have used very well in recent times, gives you the tools and skills to talk about almost anything, even the toughest issues. So visit vitalsmarts.com.au forward slash DSTM, that's Don't Shoot the Messenger, for a special listener offer and more information. Corrie, You've got a book. I do. It's called Rule Britannia by Daphne du Maurier. It was the last book that uh, Dame, the Dame wrote before she died. And the interesting thing is, Caro, I actually practiced what I preach in the bookshop when people come in and they say, I'm going on a trip and I'd like to read something about the country. You know, do you have a nonfiction or a history or something? I go, read fiction. When you're in the country, read, read all your nonfiction and get your notes and all of that before you go. But when you're in the country, try and read the literature of that country, which is exactly what I did. As I was walking with you and our foursome through the fields and little laneways of Cornwall, I was reading this book by Daphne Jamari that is set in the fields and laneways of country Cornwall. The, the book is set in 1972. It was written in 1972, just months before Britain joined the common market. And Daphne Jumoria, who was, I, I guess you'd say that she'd probably be a Brexiteer in these days, in this current stage, she was dead against this idea of Britain giving up their economy and all things British. She actually wrote this book 
uh, which is the premise is that Britain has been in the common market for some time. They've pulled out of the EU because they've lost money. The whole country is going to the dogs. And what happens is that the Americans, one morning when uh, the key characters look outside across their farmland over to the beautiful water of the Cornwall coast, they see United States Marines crossing the fields and there is uh, there are a couple of big warships out in the bay. And it turns out that the UK and the USA have joined forces. The US have said, we will look after you, Britain. We're with you. We're behind you. And we're going to start a single nation called US-UK, which if you say it, it's you suck, which is hilarious. So it's how the Cornish rebellion whips around the country, gains traction, and the whole of Britain, before we know it, is actually up in arms that this invasion is occurring. It is hilarious. Anna from the op shop uh, read this book after I did. I threw it to her as I uh, boarded my aeroplane and she still had a week in London. And she was saying the other night, Caro, and I agree that there's the, the, the plot doesn't hang all that well, but there are so many funny and witty moments in this and so many prescient moments where Daphne writing this 50 years ago, she could have been writing about what's happening in Britain now as they grapple with the whole Brexit issue. It sounds very prophetic, but a slightly difficult read. You really have to persist. Uh well, it's the plot. The plot moves well because the main characters are so hilarious. These these Cornish um, farmers and and rural folk, led by Mad, who is Mad as in Madame, because she was a famous London West End actress who now is in her eighties. And actually, re- reviewers have said closely resembles Daphne du Maurier. They think she's sort of a slightly autobiographical character, but she's rather eccentric and she leads the charge against the invading American forces. So the plot itself is easy, but the language, sometimes it gets a bit stuck, but you've got to persevere for the good bits. So I, I really do recommend it. And in fact, I think it's a great book club book, to be honest. If, if book clubbers approach it knowing when it was written, the context in which it was written just before Britain went into the EU, and then looking at it from today's perspective, it's a fascinating book. So that is my book of the week, Rule Britannia. Well, I just want to throw in a footnote. Thank you for that review. I'd love to borrow it after Anna. Um, I found in my bookshelves the other day the Rebecca Notebook. It's um, a Daphne de Maurier. It's just a paperback that I think I bought at a fair somewhere or a market. And it, it's basically... It looks like it has a very 70s groovy font on the front, Caro. It looks yes. like it's a bit yep. old edition. And it, well, it's interesting. The, the interesting thing about it, and it's got some short stories, um, but it, it talks about the, the birth of Rebecca and it came to her when she was living in Alexandria where her husband Tommy was stationed during the war and she was miserable and she was with two young children and that's where she started the outline for the story about a woman. Um, it changed a lot. Um, when she got back to England and back into a lovely Tudor house after the war, um, I think Mrs Danvers, the housekeeper, became more sinister. Um, the husband's name changed from Henry to Max. Um, the various other characters changed as well. But the interesting thing about this, the Zena, the sorry, the birth of this book, is that after the Alfred Hitchcock film, Rebecca, came out, the David O. Selznick film, um, an international... Olivier and Joan Fontaine. And Joan Fontaine, uh, absolutely brilliant film. Anyway, um, and the Australian actress, June... Oh, yes, um, Jeff Slattery talked about this when you were away. Her name will come to us in a minute. She played Mrs Danvers and June... Joan, anyway, she was a brilliant actress. But anyway, um, a suit for plagiarism was brought against um, the Selznick International Pictures 
by the family of a Mrs. McDonald um, who said the story was a copy of her novel, Blind Windows. June Anderson? Judith Anderson. Judith Anderson. Well done. Um, anyway, th- this, this woman... Um, this Mrs. McDonald said Rebecca was a rip-off of her novel, Blind Windows. Um, Daphne de Moria then read the novel and glanced through it. She said it was nothing like Rebecca, except that the man in the book had been married twice. She was called as a witness for the defence, so she had to go over to America. Did you know this? Yes, I did. It's all in that wonderful biography by oh, Tatiana okay. de Rossney. Well, what happened is she had to go over um, with her... With her, we went with one of her children. She stayed with her American publishers, Nelson and Ellen Doubleday. Um, and the only me- memory um, of the plagiarism suit she has now, when this book came out, is that she had still had the Rebecca Notebook, which had the original in, that she wrote in Alexandria, where she laid out the foundation for the book. So as soon as she put all that forward, Case or, over. Case dismissed. But she and the Doubleday, the friends who were so good to her, um, the Doubledays, they. Um, Kept that she gave them the notebook and they gave it back to her, or her descendants gave it back to her after they died. And she wrote this book. And there's also a wonderful short story in it called, um, I think it's called The House of Secrets. Anyway, well, if people really are, good. if people are interested in Daphne du Maurier's most extraordinary life, may I refer them again to Mandalay Forever by Tatiana de Rosnay, which is a ripper of a biography. And in fact, uh, she does Tatiana de Rosnay does explore which other biographers have avoided uh, suggestions of Daphne du Maurier's uh, bisexuality. And in fact, Rule Britannia Caro, the book I mentioned earlier, is actually dedicated to. Uh, Gladys Cooper, who was a famous um, actress and who died in 1971. And it is alleged by many people that she – we know that she and and, uh, Daphne had a very close relationship, but it is alleged that they were, in fact, lovers. So that's interesting as well. Now, you have a screen. Yeah, look, I finally saw the final quarter, the Ian Darling – Shark Productions documentary about the final three years of Adam Goods's football career. Uh, there's what can I say? It is, it is breathtaking. It is so upsetting, and almost brutal. In its, um, it just hits you in the face, Corrie. It is all taken from vision and footage and interviews and commentary that happened over the last three years of Adam's career. So, Carol, I understand there's no narrator. No. No, so it's just it's just pieced together actual happenings and it's up to the viewer to make up their own minds. Yes, but it, and it opens with um, a comment by Sam Newman on the footy show that just brings back in all its horror the the, the nightmare that Adam Goods went through. And, and there's an interview, I think it's on either Bronte or one of the Sydney beaches after a game, after he's done the dance, that famous dance in the um, Marnbrook game against Carlton, where the AFL just, you know, really never should have done so much more immediately to celebrate that, but they said nothing. They remained completely numb and paralysed. Um, but anyway, and you watch this interview and people asking him, why is he a polarising character and why do you divide people? And you watch him just almost, you watch his face just fall, but him trying to stand tall and trying to stand up. It is quite heartbreaking. I went and saw it at a Village Roadshow cinema on Monday with our friend Mary, and I'm really glad I didn't go alone because it made me cry. It was so upsetting. It goes for about 70 minutes. You are gripped through it. I, I want to see it again. It um, obviously involves a lot of people I know, um, including you know journalists I know and um 
shows that I was on at the time and things that I said and things that a lot of people said. It is one of the most chilling moments is when they go back to a former Collingwood president, Alan McAllister, talking about, you might remember this from the late 80s, early 90s, where he said he's got nothing against Aboriginals as long as they conduct themselves like white people. Mm. And it's then he, the old but, I'm not a racist but. but. He, he almost looks like Eddie Maguire, like the two Collingwood presidents apologising for their slips of the tongue. It is quite, um, I think Eddie and his wife Carla were shown the film by Ian Darling privately, I'm told, because obviously it was going to be very confronting for them. Every club has seen it. The AFL's response has been a, a beautifully written apology, probably overseen by Tanya Hosh and Liz Lucan, one of their corporate affairs bosses. But, you know, no actual verbal apology from either the chairman or the CEO of the AFL. But there was some other moments. The booing becomes terrifying, mm-hmm. horrifying. It, the Hawthorne game where that club just failed to, failed so badly to do anything, to admit that it was racist. The um, This by-play, this conversation between Charlie King the Aboriginal commentator, and Andrew Bolt, where he says to Andrew, just imagine you as the one white man in a stadium full of Aboriginal people, full of black people. All the journalists are Aboriginal. All the umpires are Aboriginal. All your teammates are Aboriginal. And you're being booed. Put yourself in that position. And Andrew Bolt says, I know what it's like. I get flack for my columns. You know, Andrew Bolt, who's written since, not seen the film, but written since that he will not be apologising to Adam Goods, just staggering. Staggering that they had these, they had this dislike towards him. They keep saying because of the way he treated a thirteen-year-old girl who called him an ape or a gorilla during a football game. Well, he didn't know she was thirteen, and he begged people to support her. He said he didn't blame her. It is that the oh. what have we heard from from Sam Newman? Do we know what he has thought? Has he seen the film? Do He's seen the film, and he put out a tweet afterwards saying he supports Adam Goods. It would be so embarrassing for him to see it now. Um, it's beautifully done. It is just so moving. It is It is just such a it, – it, it's so brilliantly edited. And um, anyway, it's on Channel 10 this week on Thursday night. We're speaking before it actually airs on Channel 10. Where, where you mean your, t- your football show? No, 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 the documentary. Oh, you and, oh, you and I are speaking. <laughs> yes. Yeah, like as we, I, thought, I thought you were doing another media as, performance. As we speak, the public has not seen this film. And, what do, you think, and do you think there will be uh, personal fallout here, reputations tarnished? Oh, well, I mean, I think that we all know where Alan Jones stands. Alan Jones refused to have his image actually reflected in the documentary. So an actor voices his comments. Um, but some of the writings of Andrew Bolt, Miranda Devine, who still says talks about how they have this terrible sympathy for this 13-year-old girl, the girl who racially vilified Adam. It's just crap. They it's don't... not about her anymore. Well, I mean, it, it's just irrelevant. I mean, no one... It's just wrong to say. It was never about her. He, as you say, he didn't pick on her because she was 13 and she was a young girl. He gave the most beautiful speech the next day. Anyway, the sad thing is he's still not back in the game. He still hasn't been to a Brownlow presentation. He won two Brownlows. He never had a farewell cavalcade at the MCG like other retiring champions. He still really only goes to one game a year, one or two Swans games a year, and he is in the security of a private box. It was the trauma he must have gone through. And the horror is just, it is just so upsetting. Anyway, it's, well, it's I a hope, brilliant Well, I hope the outpouring of support, which inevitably, by what you said, will follow Thursday night screening, I hope that gives him some comfort. And I hope he does come back to the public stage because we need his strong, powerful, empathetic voice. 
it is um, quite amazing to listen to um, the comedian Charlie Pickering, who just nails it time and time and time again. Anyway, that is the final quarter, the Adam Goods documentary. There's another one, which is called The Australian Dream, the Stan Grant documentary. He also features heavily in the final quarter. That is going to premiere at the Melbourne Film Festival on August the 1st. Now, you made an Otto Lingy cake for me yes, I know. on I, Saturday Night, we, Corrie. Caro, we've just workshopped this book to within an inch of its life, Simple by Yotam Otto Lingy, which came out about October 2018 and has been a bestseller around the world. But when you sent out the call to arms to the Cornwall walkers, can everybody bring something Cornish? It's a bit hard on the pudding front, really scones or fudge, that seemed to be, and clotted cream, where one gets that in Australia, I have no idea. Somerset cheddar. Right. So, <laughs> so I took inspiration from the fact that we had a lovely night, one of our last nights in London. We actually went to the Ottolenghi restaurant. And as our friend Trudy, who has spent a fair bit of time in Cornwall through family, said to me, oh, apple cakes, apple pie, that's very Cornish. So I decided to cook for us from Gildamotolenghi, simple. It's called spiced apple cake. And the recipe will be in our show notes because it is a bit, it's, it's not in tense and it's not long, but for the purposes of this podcast, I'm not going to bore everyone with it. But essentially, it is a cake that you must serve warm. It's topped with apples that you uh, don't soak, but you you put allspice and sugar on them and leave them for about half an hour before you arrange them on the top. Demerara sugar, of course. So that makes it really caramelized. And you put them on the top of the cake and you cook the cake for about an hour. And of course, the, the apples just pop in flavour. The interesting thing, Caro, is that Ottolenghi suggests, and I did this, although I didn't have Bramley apples, I actually used ones from Red Hill, so they were local, but he likes a mix of Bramley apples and Granny Smith, probably for the tartness, yep. which I think is really fabulous. Anyway, it's a great recipe. We served it with cream. Uh, there was not a crumb to be left on anyone's plate, I'm happy to say, and I will put the recipe up, but it's a really good one, as you said, because uh, a little piece was left at your house, you said the next day it was even tastier. And yep, Yot- cold Yotam, with a cup of tea, yummy. Yotam does say that this cake can be, it should be eaten on the day it's baked because it's lovely warm, but you can uh, use it the day after if you put it in an airtight container. Great recipe, highly recommend. That was BSF. Sounds good, Corey. I'm going to have a crack at that recipe, thanks to Vital Smarts. Globally proven, crucial conversations. Now, Corrie, what are you grumpy about today? I am grumpy about a job in a job in my house that I absolutely hate, Carol. Yes, I know everybody knows my loathing of cleaning out the fridge, but this is probably a close, very close first second. It's cleaning out the chuff in your cutlery drawer. I agree. You don't even know what chuff is. It's just all the stuff <laughs> that well, gets chuff- down to the butt under your teaspoons and under your knives and forks. And how does it get there? Anyone who listens to Fortunately with Fee and Jane, which is one of my favourite podcasts, will know the term chuff was actually invented the other day by Fee, but we all know what it is. It's the bits that... that, that Gather in the corners of your cutlery drawer. I would say muck. Is it because you leave the cutlery drawer open when you're cooking and crumbs go in well, there? Well, Jane wondered, does it come off the cutlery itself? But I think it's because usually your cutlery drawer is in the centre of your kitchen where you make your toast, you cook your 
chops, you make your salad, whatever it is that you're doing, and particles just seem to fly into that drawer more than any other drawer in the kitchen. Yep. I don't understand. And I clean it about once a month. I know I have an issue with weevils. Sorry to my dearly departed mother. I will continue confessing to the world that I have a weevil issue until I solve it. But I am now going to actually open the drawer on the cutlery drawer chuff issue. And I think I may have solved how to clean it, but I wish I knew how to keep everything out of there. So, Caro, this annoying, like Ajax, Wetexes, you try everything to get get through the day with your terrible cutlery drawer. I've actually discovered if you get a sharp knife, a really sharp, like a cheese knife, cut a butter knife or something, a cheese knife, and you wrap a paper towel around the end of it and you stick the corner into the corners of the cutlery drawer, you'll be able to get most of your chuff out. But then usually because cutlery drawers are so narrow, it's quite hard to fit your hand in sometimes to actually scoop yeah. through with your wet ex or your wet rag. But a paper towel, a damp paper towel, does seem to do the trick. And then you've got to leave all the teaspoons or forks out and then you've got to wait. Till, oh, While it dries. Nightmare. It says a lot about us that all our grumpies lately have been very domestic. Well, now, it's coming back from a holiday. We just, it's oh. just apparent in our world that this is the stuff that we hate because we've been away from it. And I, my um, laundry powder ran out again the other day, so I've got to have to go through the whole thing again, opening that flipping box. Now, Corrie, six quick questions. I finally saw Red Joan, the Judy Dench movie oh, the other day. Oh, did you enjoy it? Anna from the Op Shop spoke about it last year when um, she went to the British Film Festival, but I loved it. It was subtle, it was nuanced, and it was very moving. I want to ask you your favourite Judy Dench movie or performance. Well, look, Caro, there are probably two uh, films where she's not actually the lead. So the first one would be Shakespeare in Love. I thought her role as Queen Elizabeth I really set up that amazing regal court detention uh, and the role of uh, William Shakespeare at that time. The MTC's the, um, doing that at the moment. It's oh, been, are they? meant to be really good. Yeah. Oh, there you go. And yeah. the second one is Notes on a Scandal which starred, of course, the beautiful Kate Blanchett and Judy Dench as her co-worker, her colleague at the school, who discovers that, who ingratiates herself into Kate Blanchett's family and discovers that Kate is having an affair with one of the students at their school and, or the Kate character, I should say, and she, and how she menacingly reveals this. Notes on a Scandal is a really good movie if anybody's looking for a tip. And don't ask me again how you find it in on the World Wide Web, but I'm sure you will somehow. Uh, there's, I just want to mention A Fine Romance, the TV series she did for the BBC. Oh, yes, with Jeffrey. Um, I no, love was it, was that the Michael actor? Williams. Michael, that's right, Michael I Williams. absolutely love Wasn't that Wasn't that wonderful? That's when she first sort of sprung into our lives. Caro, question to you. Looking back over this bumper month of international sport, which victory captivated you the most? Richmond's over the west, over the Greater Western Sydney. On oh. <laughs> just kidding. No, no. Look, the World Cup. Take the, that English cricket the, the, team. The cricket, the men's cricket World Cup, which is an ongoing saga. Which, um, oh, look although at, the New Zealanders have graciously said no, it's yours. Um, look, it was just. I have not seen an end to a tournament like that ever. I, I've become captivated again by the Australian cricket team, so that was fantastic. I mean, in the end, it was a really disappointing capitulation in the semi-final. I did stay up and watch it, but I've loved it because of Aaron Finch emerging, emerging as a really good leader. Um, obviously, Alex Carey, you know, who in fact was a GWS listed player, who's gone on to become a really promising international batsman and cricket all-round cricketer, wicketkeeper. Um, 
and that final, I mean, that final over, the super over, when the ball ricocheted off the bat as it was thrown in from the boundary and it ricocheted back again for a boundary. I mean, New Zealand really was robbed, but they've taken it very well. I mean, under the rules, they got beaten fair and square. England winning its first ever World Cup. Um, Yet another reason to love New Zealand, Caro. New Zealand's astonishing victory over India. Look, it was just on the same night that there was that unbelievable (laughs) five-setter. If you lived in London, you'd be really... Oh. Wondering, and then Babs was on at Hyde Park. Oh, it, it, with what Brian a, Ferry. Oh, what what choices? Oh, to be in England now that July is here. Anyway, so so that would be that would be my number one. Um, Corrie, Jeremy Hunt or Boris Johnson? Oh, to speaking not be, of the ponds. Oh, oh, to not be in England in this month. Who to become leader? Well, looks like Barrett Boris has the prime ministership in the bag. However, I'm with Jeremy Hunt. I think not only is he rather handy on the eye, but he's a more moderate Brexiteer. He's trying to bring the country you, together. You realise if you said that a male said that about a woman, that they would get. Into I'm a just huge redressing two thousand years of imbalance, Caro. <laughs> oh, yeah, all right. Um, so Kim Derrick, as we know, uh, fell on his sword as the British ambassador to the US this week following Donald Trump's outrage about those cables that were leaked. No fault of Kim's, I have to say. Uh, nothing from Boris, nothing at all. But Jeremy Hunt, who wrote on Twitter, and this takes me back, Carol, to, you know, after 30 years of being a journalist, no longer one, but I went back to my journalist self. Applaud, applaud Jeremy Hunt, who said, these leaks damaged US-UK relationships and cost a loyal ambassador his job. So the person responsible must be held fully account, account, to account. But I defend to the hilt the right of the press to publish those leaks if they receive them and judge them to be in the public interest. That is their job. Hooray, hooray. Unfortunately, I don't think it's going to get him over the line. Probably not. Um, I want to ask you something about winter, Caro. What's your favourite thing about these miserable rainy days that we've been having lately? Quite apart from driving through any part of the countryside at the moment, and it's also beautiful and green around Victoria, the rain on my rooftop as I'm in bed, I just love going to sleep to the sound of falling rain. It is, it's except, many, if you, except if you have a leak. Well, yes. Which is very distressing. Hopefully not in your bedroom. Look, I just absolutely love that noise. And I know my cousin Georgie actually sets her phone. There's an app on your phone. Yes, it helps you sleep. That, that I've tried that one. She can get rain. Um, I've never, I'm not that It tech- makes me want to go to the toilet, so I stopped doing it. <laughs> But I even love waking up in the in the middle of the night and hearing rain. So yeah, that me would be... too. But we we always have leaks in the bookshop. So whenever I hear rain, I I'm stricken. Well, oh, presumably you're not going to bed in the bookshop. I'm talking about night. No, but when you lie there thinking what's happening down the road while I'm here in bed, uh, Corrie, your favourite store: Bunnings, IKEA, or Bed Bath and Table? Well, I must say, Bed Bath and Table have a very handy sale on at the moment. But And I do love the Bunnings sausage, but I have to say IKEA, and I say this in defence, Caro, of an article that appeared in your newspaper over the weekend by, a, I guess she's a contributor, Casey Edwards, who said, that's it, I declare IKEA the 10th circle of hell. Oh, Casey, how can you say that? I love nothing more than wandering around IKEA, pretending I'm Swedish, knowing that if I buy that thing, there's going to be... Uh, sort of four hours of frustration while we put it together and where is the Phillips key and yelling at partners and all of that sort of stuff. It can be stressful going down to the warehousey bit when you have to put the stuff in you. But it, it is. A, a look, the, the, My favourite of all. The bargains are unbelievable. And Carol, you have a good local tip. Well, funnily enough, it does relate to a big chain store. 
Kmart. Now you've you mentioned Kmart before mm, in that terms was of my, That was my tip last week. Uh, last year, I mean. Corrie, Kmart jeans. Kmart jeans are between fifteen and twenty dollars, depending on what day you get there and what department store, what what Kmart you are at. At the moment, you can buy the most fabulous blue jeans, white jeans, black jeans. They have all different colours. They're fifteen dollars. And they are really, really, that sort of boyfriend style, you know, just straight up and down jeans, nothing smart about them, high-waisted, really warm. But they're, does it, do they cover your figure faults, Caro? They are so flattering. Do you, you know, have I, to lie on the bed to do them up, no, Caro? No, They're $15. Some of them, I saw a pair the other day. I think sometimes. Remember when we were young, when we were about 14 and we tried to get in a pair of Wranglers and you'd have to lie on the bed and yeah. your mother would come in going, what are you doing? I'm trying to do up my jeans. I still, I still have to do that when I put boots on. Kmart jeans, and I get a lot of tips from the Channel 9 makeup girls. Well, I walked in the other day and they're both, you know, strutting around, one in a, a faded blue pair, one in, you know, that black sort of fake sort of leather, whatever it's called, brush cotton or whatever it is. And it looks, I said, oh, I love, you both got great jeans on. They said, Kmart, one paid $15. I think $15. we might have to have the Channel 9 makeup girls on the podcast one, one day. One paid $20. Get to Kmart if you want a great pair of jeans and you can change colours every sort of three months because they're so reasonable. There you go. And you don't have to lie on the bed to do them up, which is even better. So that was Don't Shoot the Messenger, Corrie. It it's seems been... to have gone very quick this week, Caro. Well, that's our view. Hopefully it's the view of others. Thank you for coming in. Please tell your family and friends to subscribe to our podcast. Send your feedback, comments, tips and suggestions to the Don't Shoot the Messenger Facebook page. You can follow us on Instagram or Twitter using the handle at Don't Shoot Pod or you can email us feedback at don'tshootpod.com.au. Please get in fact, please get in touch and don't forget we will be celebrating our 100th episode in September. Details to come. Thank you to Vital Smarts. Thank you to Jane Neild, our producer, and Corrie. Don't shoot the messenger, Caro. Hi, I'm Ann Summers. Hello, this is Laura Tingle. Hi, this is Leanne Moriarty. I'm Jen Harper. Hi, I'm Marcus Suzak. I'm David Maher. Join me on The Book Pod. I hope you can join Corrie Perkin and I on The Book Pod. I would have been any one of the famous five. I just wanted to have those sorts of adventures because, believe me, nothing like that happened in suburban Caulfield. Always, no matter how abstract the issue, you have to find the narrative and you have to find characters and around those you build the story. You know, some authors take a decade to write a book. I would miss the meeting the readers. And I think also people often completely underestimate if something is easy to read, they think that means it's easy to write and it's absolutely not. It's such a skill. Subscribe to the book pod. Subscribe to the book pod. In your favourite podcast app. Wherever you listen to podcasts.